Hello, and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 74 movies, one cage. This is episode 30, Face Off, from 1997, directed by John Woo. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Joey Lewandowski, and we have with us another guest, another Mike, second episode in a row with two Mikes. Gotta break that streak at some point. We're joined today by Mike Flynn, who has loved Face Off since it came out in theaters. So welcome to Cage Club, Mike Flynn. It is a pleasure to be at the Cage Club. When we were first handing out episodes to people, I, I believe you were one of the first, if not the first person I went to, because I knew that you wanted to talk about this movie. We wish you could have joined us for Deadfall. Schedules didn't work out, but you're here now for maybe the greatest Cage movie that we're ever going to talk about. Things couldn't be better. People say Citizen Kane made them want to make movies. Seven Samurai, Star Wars... A lot of seminal films inspired people to write, direct. Face Off was that movie for me. I remember the trailers looking stupid, and I thought it was some Twilight Zone horror thing from the trailers. This was actually nominated at the Golden Trailer Awards for Trailer of the Decade for the 1990s. Like, the trailer is amazing. You just go watch it on YouTube. Like, the camera starts in front of Travolta's face, and it does like this 360 degree turn around his head, like a slow turn that probably takes about 45 seconds. And when it makes its way all the way around, it's Cage's face. And it's unbelievably good. The first time I saw Face Off, I was in Long Beach Island, and my cousin had raved about it and convinced me and my mom and my stepdad to go see it during a torrential rainstorm. I don't know the exact moment. I'm pretty sure it would have been that runway chase. I was entranced, and it was the biggest, coolest fucking thing I'd ever seen in my life. I pretty much said afterward, this is my favorite movie ever made. I think this movie is probably the closest to a Western, heroic bloodshed, John Woo-directed Hong Kong action movie that we ever got. Whatever it is, however you want to describe it, it's wonderful. Like, it's exactly what we've been building up toward in Cage Club. It's a great turn in Cage's career. It's, like, this whole week has been what we've been building toward, that Cage has been doing all these different roles. He was this huge... He, like, he broke into the action scene with The Rock. He then went to the next level with Con Air, and he sort of caps it off here in Face Off. And what's sort of cool, and this goes back to something that you were saying earlier, Mike, is that he's the villain in this, but he almost didn't take the movie, supposedly because he was going to be the villain. He didn't want to play a villain at this point, but then John Woo told him, no, 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 you're actually going to be playing the good guy for most of the time, and that made him want to take the role. He's been a good guy in a couple movies, his two most recent movies, but he's played a villain a lot recently, right, Mike Manzi? Like, he's been Kiss of Death, he was Little Junior, he's been the bad guy, so it's sort of surprising that he didn't want to be a bad guy again in this movie. Yeah, even going back to, like, Deadfall and Zondali, you know, he was always the guy with the nefarious plans and the ulterior motives, so it's in him as an actor, it's in his repertoire, right, so it's time to pull it out in the action genre, like you said, like, he was sort of desk jockey who was thrown into the field with The Rock, and Con Air, he's the full-fledged Rambo-style action guy incarnate, and in this one, at least he starts out as, you know, the supervillain, right? I mean, I almost feel like he's doing his Joker in this movie for the first yeah. part here. Best of both worlds, villain and hero, right? He, he gets to do it all with this movie, so it's just right a culmination of the Cage trilogy here. There's like several firsts right now in Face Off. I think it's the first just mustache. I mean, he's had a mustache before, 
but this is like creepy, like don't know why, weird hairstyle choice. The first scene of the movie is Travolta's with his son Michael on the carousel and it's spinning around. And then Cage with a sniper rifle is just going to kill Travolta, shoots through him, and the bullet exits his body and kills his son. And then Cage walks away. It's a crazy mustache. It's a very early kill for Cage. Is this the first time jump? We go to six years later. Is this the first time jump in Cage Club? I think it's the earliest time we see this. I mean, they jump time. I think it's uh, six years in Time to Kill when Caruso's behind bars. We have a time jump in that film. Oh, right. And they sort of do a time jump montage in Con Air when Cage is behind bars in the opening. But this is by far the fastest time jump title card, I think, in film history. We're two minutes into the movie, and then we're just six years later. <laughs> and it's funny, you got to start wondering what fast food place Caster Troy stopped at before he tried to off Sean Archer. <laughs> yeah, the straw, right? It's just like this eccentric creeping. Like, sure, he's brazen enough to pull, like, this grassy knoll hit in, like, an open <laughs> field. Basically, he's in, like, a park. But, like, he's sipping at a straw out of a can of soda or something. Yeah, it's just, like, that extra touch says something about this guy. They're just choices, right? Like, whether they're Cage's choices or John Woo's choices, they fit into this mythology of Cage Club in terms of this guy. Just a crazy mustache, a crazy way of drinking soda, very defined character, even without saying anything. Like, we know... Not only is he a bad guy, but he's a weirdo bad guy. The other thing I want to point out about this opening scene is that the merry-go-round, notice how there's absolutely nobody else at this (laughs) carnival, amusement park, whatever this is. There are no extras. It's just Travolta and the kid. Is there a reason for that? I sort of thought of it, like, we flash forward so that when we start the movie, like, it's, for all intents and purposes, present time. But the way it's shot, it almost seems like it's Travolta remembering it. Is that why you think there's nobody else there? Because he doesn't care about anything else, he's just remembering his son? There's a surreal element to that, and Wu tended to do that a bit in some of his films. In The Killer, there's a great shot of Chow Yun-Fat shooting someone. The background fills up with blood. I would want to say it was a Wu flourish that he sort of did that, and the interpretation of... It being Archer's memory is interesting because he's maybe thinking that's the only thing that he can think of is his son dying and the man who killed him. It's a woo flourish and it's sort of his core sort of trauma. It's what the rest of the film is going to be, you know, focused around. So in the scene, we're just focused on him and his son. Lack of any other actors is helping that. So then we have a hard cut six years later. This is what Mike was saying earlier. This is peak cage Like, the first thing we see him do is planting this massive bomb that's going to take out basically all of downtown L.A. L.A. L.A.? Yeah, he says L.A. instead of L.A. at one point. (laughs) And lest we forget, he is disguised as a priest who gropes a choir girl who may or may not be underage. I never really enjoy the Messiah. In fact, I think it's fucking boring. But your voice makes even a hack like Handel. Seem like a genius. There's a convention center that is holding two conventions. There's like the National Bar Association and also just like the National Church Choir Association. Lawyers and choirs 
and Cage is fitting in looking like a priest. Like, full creepy Cage does the little head flip that he did in Zombie and he's done in one other movie. <laughs> we also have to mention that, like, the, the bomb, like, everything about this plan, everything about, like, Cage as a villain is just perfect. The bomb interface is just, like, a hot girl named Sinclair. When people <laughs> go to disarm it or they try to learn a little bit more information about it, it says, I'm going to blow you away. <laughs> what I love about this, he plants the bomb, he goes to talk to that cute choir girl, then they go to the airport. So really, his entire plan, which is crazy, is to plant a bomb in L.A. and then just fly away. And then, like, wait eight days or whatever, ten or twelve days, and just watch the bomb blow up. That's, like, the ultimate, like, mass, like, crazy evil villain plot. Like, just set a huge bomb, then just leave. I'm pretty sure he's paid, it's like a paid job, right? Like, we find out he's an assassin, not an assassin, but he's a terrorist for hire. He and his brother are sort of like, they work for the highest bidder. And there's one mentioned later where they're like, oh, we're not going to get paid because, like, we're in prison. But they're like, yeah, but L.A.'s still going down and stuff. So I think it's just like a job for him, you know? Like, his brother designs the bomb and he plants it and then they go pick up their money. You're going to get paid like $10 million, right? Yeah. It's some unknown entity that's just going to pay these guys a ton of money to just blow up L.A. And, like, it doesn't (laughs) matter who's doing it because we don't care. It's just crazy enough on its own. One thing I liked about the girl that he approaches as a priest, the choir girl, looks a lot like Sean Archer's daughter. It's sort of like she sure does, a double-ish she? sort of double version there, a little bit of like foreshadowing maybe. And she's also really into him being super creepy. <laughs> so they go to the airport and Cage, Christ-like, sticks out his arms to get disrobed. And I love that like eight minutes into this movie, he's already changing looks. Like obviously it's not as <laughs> elaborate, as complicated as it's going to be a little bit later. But, like, the first thing we really see him do, or one of the first things, is change his appearance, right? He gets out of the car like he's Puff Daddy or something. <laughs> he looks like he's in a 90s rap video when he gets yeah. out. Yeah, that's a great point. It's like, this movie looks beautiful, but this point especially does look like a gangster rapper, like, idealized entourage and all, right? Like, he's got his two main hitmen, who somehow survive until the end. He's got the black dude and the Irish guy, and we get to meet him and his nebbish little brother, right? Who kind of looks like he could be Cage's little brother. I do want to point out the cinematographer for Face Off, Oliver Wood, does have a lot of experience making action movies. Uh, he did Die Hard 2. He did the first three Bourne films. The guy knows action movies. He really shoots the hell out of this movie. Yeah, I feel like John Woo likes him too. You know, they really capture, like, the fetish angle of everything going on. Like, you know, like Cage just, like, changing his clothes. Like, it's fetishized, right? Like, yeah. you know, an explosion, like, super fetishized. Like, we don't just get a car chase. Like, pretty soon we're going to get, like, a plane chase with, like, a squad of Humvees, you know, in helicopter. <laughs> just pure fetish. That's the thing about John Woo is fetishism. He fetishizes guns, specifically Beretta. And it's interesting in Face Off, if you pay attention, you get the Berettas, but not immediately. You have Castor Troy, who uses two Springfield 1911 45s, and that's always stuck out with me. I thought the fact that he had gold guns was the coolest thing I'd ever <laughs> the seen man in my with life. The golden gun. I mean, that's so great. We had Connery as a Bond connection in The Rock, and now we have the man with the golden gun. So there's a couple things to point out here about Cage's younger brother, Pollux Troy. Apparently was originally going to be played by Mark Wahlberg. 
he turned down the role of Pollux Troy, which would have been crazy and amazing. I don't know that he necessarily fits within the, Mike, you said, like, the, the nebbish look. He's like a, he's kind of like a Brainiac, right? Like, Wahlberg doesn't necessarily <laughs> no. fit that bill. <laughs> he does not strike me as a Brainiac. But he would be great to be Cage's brother anyway. So, like, some cool, there's a lot of things in this movie that, like, if you want to make fun of, you can, but also, like, why? We didn't make fun of The Rock. We didn't make fun of Conair. We're not going to make fun of this. We're going to embrace it for everything. So Castor and Pollux are Gemini, the, the fabled twins, the one of the 12 signs of the Zodiac. What's really cool, though, is that diametrically opposite from them on the calendar is the Sagittarius Archer, a.k.a. Sean Archer. Mm. So it's cool that, like, I always got the Castor and Pollux twins, the, the stars, but just the fact that they're diametrically opposed from the Archer, from Travolta, is just wonderful naming. And, like, you can make fun of it for being too on the nose, but it just, it fits within, like, the mythology that this world builds. Absolutely. It's a weird choice of name, Castor Troy. But it's distinctive, and so is Pollux Troy. The other thing is that in Greek mythology, Castor and Pollux were the twin sons of Zeus, and they fought together in the Trojan War, which was fought in Troy. Yeah. So, like, their whole name, <laughs> like, first and last name, it's all there for a reason, and it's just, it's attention paid to a name. It's a great, nice little touch. I was going to bring up the Troy-Trojan horse sort of connection and, like, how they even play into that with, you know, swapping faces and, you know, being infiltrating other lives and so forth. There's sort of a hint of a theme there as well. But, uh, yeah, I just, I appreciated the effort with the naming and stuff. Like, I didn't pick up on all of it, but it's great to be there because it just adds that extra flourish. They don't have time to spend more time on, right? Like, if you can get something across in a name, you don't have to do anything else to to expand on that. Yeah, you're all about efficient storytelling, and like, what more efficient way is there than just naming the character something to give them a little bit of information about it? They get to the airport, and Cage does the, the, something that he does several times throughout the movie. He ties Pollux's shoes, and he says, if I didn't love you so much, I'd kill you. It seems like he's they have the kind of relationship that Pollux is like this screw-up, but Cage just loves him. It's unconditional brotherly love, but he also sort of gets on his nerves, because I feel like Castor Troy is the kind of character who won't tolerate anything but the best almost you know what i mean like he's too good at what he does he's this ruthless killer he's this great sort of terrorist for hire if people aren't up to snuff he just has no time for them he's a perfectionist and an egomaniac and he's very elaborate yeah and i I think that's like maybe the one of the things that archer has in common with him you know archer is tenacious we see him at the fbi like throwing a fit going like have we found him like you know oh pollux troy paid for a plane go go like set up a team set up right and everyone else is sort of just standing there with their thumb up their ass like they neither of them will accept like anything but the best they push whoever they need to sort of around and like even though he loves his brother castor is sort of still like does sort of threaten him i mean i don't know if you guys have any brothers and i mean my brothers used to kind of beat me up a little but like <laughs> i never got like that menace from him where he's like in your sleep like you know sleep when i open that's kind of what I, i'm getting here what's important to notice like it's that perfectionism that cage is all about it's like the lack of that on pollock's behalf that gets them into the trouble that he pays for a plane in cash and he's sort of flagged by whoever's at the airport Cage has the goons. Like he's got these other guys who aren't as well-known that should have paid for the plane and cash, but Pollux did it. And so that tips off Travolta and the rest of the FBI that something's going down because Pollux doesn't fly without Caster. So they're on the way to the airport. Caster says, hey, you might want to stay away from downtown for a while. Like, things are going to get a little crazy. 26 minutes late. Casing didn't fit right. 
Yeah, I told you goddamn Dietrich would try to pawn off some cheap shit North Korean plastic. Casing fit like a condom. You didn't deviate from the plan, did you? Pollux? Well, how long do you want me to sit here twiddling my thumbs? I pay for the jet. Save us some time. That's what the boys are for. To hide our famous faces. If I didn't love you so damn much, I'd have to kill you, bro. You don't even call me bro. You guys are paid to protect him from everybody, including himself. But stay away from downtown on the 18th. It's going to be a little, uh, smoggy. And then they get on the plane, and there's the best line of the movie, right? Let's go, let's go, on board, let's go. Here you go. Mm, bravo. Would you like anything else once we're airborne? Oh. Sit. Come here. You know, I can uh, eat a peach for hours. Um, if I were to send you flowers, where would I... Uh... <laughs> Wait, let me rephrase. If I were to let you suck my tongue... Should be grateful. At this point in Cage Club, it's what we've been waiting for, right, Joey? I mean, (laughs) I don't know about you guys, but when I was sitting there in the theater in 1997, this was the first time I heard um, Nicolas Cage talk about peaches. And (laughs) so far in this retrospective, we've sort of like come across it a few times and think, you know, have been clued into what he's talking about. But yeah, it's never been more obvious. Yeah, there's like, this is the third or fourth time, right? Like the the, the one that stands out in my mind the most is in Zondali when he's offering the peach as sort of a, hey, here's Zondali back. He's rejected. So like the peach always symbolizes sex and women him able to eat a peach for hours is just it's like graphic in a way that's also not graphic like it's just it's such a great word choice it's like a bond one-liner if james bond movies were rated r yeah that's a great call and i'm almost getting like that twisted if bond was evil sort of vibe from caster troy as well right just because of how smooth and and like how he likes the you know the finer things and you know he's very well mannered and groomed and just all that kind of stuff he will bang anything that moves (laughs) and i i just want to make an aside face off kickstarted my lifelong crush on gina gershon well she is very beautiful in this movie she's not in the movie yet but who is in this movie is this beautiful blonde stewardess who happens to turn out to be undercover FBI, she's not long for this world because Caster <laughs> Troy is the kind of guy who, like, has no second thought about taking and killing a hostage. Travolta comes up with this whole FBI squad, and as they're trying to get away, they start, like, shooting at the plane, and Cage holds this woman out the airplane door much more quickly than, like, villains in most movies, just offs her, dumps her body, and then just shrugs like, hey, what are you going to do? I'm just a crazy bad guy. It's a good clue as to how ruthless he is, too. He does not care, and a lot of times he plays narcissistic. He's only in it for himself, despite all his friends. Yeah, and he knows that Archer's out there, right? So he's sort of antagonizing him. He's saying, what are you going to do? Like, I know this is your your agent, but, but Joey, like, this is two movies in a row that an undercover agent has been on a plane and blown their cover immediately, right? (laughs) 
Like, we just watched Con Air, and the second the villains take over Con Air, the undercover DEA guy's like, I'm DEA, and he whips out his gun, and, and, they, and they just beat the crap out of him. Like, he gets killed. And, like, the same exact thing happens here. So, you know, whoever's training these agents, just, like, they need a class in, like, sneaking on the airplanes. It's such a weird coincidence. Like, this is not a Bruckheimer movie. This script was not touched up by Jonathan Hensley. Like, it's crazy that it happens two movies in a row. So as this chase continues, Travolta kind of plays chicken, right? Like, he's in a Humvee, just like Connery was in a Humvee in The Rock. He's in a Humvee in this. And he's kind of playing chicken with this airplane, veers off course at the last minute, and then gets into a helicopter and basically prevents the plane from taking off by having the helicopter land on the, the launch wings or whatever. What's amazing about this movie, and I know that's sort of the whole point, but, like, this whole action scene is like the climactic ending of any other movie. This is the guy that Travolta's been chasing for six years. He finally has him. He finally knows where he's going to be. There's like this like crazy 20-minute action scene, and that's how this movie starts. It's insane. Eat your heart out, Rogue Nation. So Travolta's in the helicopter, keeping the plane from taking off. Cage shoots at the helicopter. Then the helicopter swings in front of the plane. Travolta knows how to fly a helicopter. Was he flying it or is he, he just in the passenger seat? He pulls the pilot out and jumps in and looks at his partner and basically gives him the finger and, like, takes off. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. And then he's shooting at him, like, from the chopper. And plus, this is just, like, Fast and Furious 6, right? Like, only in yeah. the daytime. And, yeah, I love the early climax here. It almost feels like the end of the last movie, in a way. You know, like, we missed the movie. Like, this is episode two. And, like, <laughs> it, like this is the sequel to something else, almost, you know? And we're picking up with these characters or something. Travolta shoots out the engine, and then the plane unable to take off like crashes into an empty airline hangar there's another like it continues like it's just like an it like escalates to the next level everything about this like whether you want like big you know plane action sequence or if you just want guys shooting at each other like it's all here in the first 15 20 minutes in the movie it's classic john woo and why the airline hangar because they need a cool place to have a shootout in yeah this is like woo gun foo like on display for the first time here where we're gonna see like they jump sideways out of the plane shooting with both hands you know like that's very woo we get the villain and the hero facing off for the first time quite literally right where they're like got that cool moment where they've counted each other's bullets giving us a little insight to how well they know each other so yeah i'm i'm loving this this stuff here you know there's one moment i noticed where some guy shoots and it just cuts to a blurry sort of image of sparks flying and that's just the elegance sort of of john woo bringing his like love of romance into to everything you know we're gonna get like kind of melodrama when we get to the drama stuff but he also loves to like romanticize violence as well like his heroes you know Kurosawa never shied away from violence, and so he's just sort of part of that tribe. Wu definitely owes a debt to Peckinpah, Scorsese, and all of his films in Hong Kong are very, very romantic. Face Off has that in space. It's a perfect combination of that Eastern romanticism and the Western Hollywood explosions every five seconds, squibs going off, blow them up, shoot them up, that action movies loved in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, so the cage is like diving out of planes, shooting guns. He shoots somebody's ear off. The first like sort of big thing that's happens in this is that Pollux gets arrested, and Cage like sees him get arrested, right? Like he's sort of like, it kind of brings him down a little bit. Margaret Cho kicks him in the stomach. 
sure. And you've got not only Margaret Cho on Archer's Strike Team, but Robert Wisdom, who played Bunny Colvin on The Wire. There's so many like action like staples, like Travolta shoots a chain and grabs a chain and flies up in the air. I think it goes back to like what Mike was saying, like it's Eastern Western sort of blending, like it almost feels kind of like Crouching Tiger. I know yeah. this is like preceded Crouching Tiger, but like it's like this elegance of just like kung fu and whatever funny. blended with action and guns. Yeah, it's funny you say that. Like you know, people don't just get shot and fall over; they get shot and fly thirty feet in the air, like across <laughs> the room. And you know, in this sequence, there are visible wires on stuntmen and stuff like that. You know, it's before they were going crazy with digital removal, and they just tried to hide things. And it's very much part of Wu's trademark and stuff like that. Like he, you know, in Hong. Kong, it was all wire work and all real and, and you know, we're feeling the realness here you know, right off the bat, they're really crashing things, they might have crashed into a fireworks factory with those explosions at some point but, <laughs> I mean, you know, at least it's there, right, it's practical According to a producer of the film they had a lot of the stunts planned to be shot in front of a green screen, John Woo and the producers and whoever decided to make it feel more real, and it really does feel more real, they did everything practical, which is the same in The Rock, and it's almost entirely the same in Con Air, it's just a completely different type of action movie than what's today. I mean, with some exceptions, Furious 7 and Mad Max did most things practically, but most things you see, like, there's no way that they would be doing all this crazy stuff. It'd be all computers. Easily. And one of the other advantages that Wu had on his side was that his first two American action films, Broken Arrow, the year before, he had a lot of studio interference, but he had even more interference when he made his Hollywood debut on Hard Target. And I think very little was edited for this to get an R rating, if anything at all. And you still have squibs and blood and, of course, later on, the gory Darkman moment. From what I read, the only thing that the studio wanted him to tone down was the assassination of Michael. You don't see the kid get hit by the bullet, right? You see the bullet hit Travolta, and then the kid's just dead. So I think there was a more graphic scene there. That's They toned that down. But for the most part, like this is the movie that he wanted to make, because wasn't he going to like leave and go back to Hong Kong because he was tired of Hollywood like meddling with his movies? He was definitely going on that route when he got offered Face Off, and then this movie was a hit. And he ended up doing Mission Impossible 2. Cage shoots a guy who dies, and as he's dying, his hand slams on the turbo control. And it starts like this massive, like, engine propeller. Cage and Travolta then, they get locked up, right? Travolta sort of has him in, like, a bear hug. And they both have guns pointed at each other. And they sort of spin away in John Boo fashion. And they both say, kind of like Matrixy, right? They're like, I know you only have one bullet left. Cage, just like the the ruthless, crazy killer, pulls his trigger, and he's out of bullets, and then immediately just sort of surrenders to Travolta. Yeah, at this point, I way that we get one of the greatest Nick Cage lines of all time. You bastard, your time's up. <laughs> well, you better hit me, Sean, because you only got one bullet left. So do you. Wow. You've got something in common. We both know our guns. What we don't have in common is that I don't care if I live, and you do. Sean, that hurts. You're not having any fun, are you, Sean? Why don't you come with us? Try terrorism for hire. We'll blow some shit up. It's more fun. Shut the fuck up. You watch your fucking mouth! I'm about to unleash the biblical plague hell deserves. The shithole of break if my brother and I walk. Bullshit. Oh, oh no, I, I see, I see. You, you think I'm bluffing? Maybe I am. 
then maybe I'm not. More importantly, what would you do with me locked up? You'd drive your wife and kid crazy. Say, how is your daughter anyway? Is she right for me by now? Your darling Janie, your little peach, is she right? Right! Okay. Police man, don't shoot me. <laughs> I'm scared, Johnny. <laughs> well, I think you better pull the trigger. Because I don't give a fuck. I'm ready. Ready for the big ride, baby. Cage then like surrenders, but like really sneaky and kind of McLean, John McLeany. Instead of having a gun taped to his back, he's got like a knife. Like he's got the little holster on his back where the two golden guns go. But in the bottom of that holster is like space for this massive knife. And he pulls that out and like slashes at Travolta. But Travolta kicks it out of the way. He gets kicked by Travolta and gets blown down that wind tunnel into the fan. And you see, it seems like he just gets knocked out, but they say that he gets killed there. Yeah, I never that- believed watching it that he died. I always just kind of assumed that he was just knocked out. I mean, as much as anyone would survive something like that. Realistically, he would probably die. But in terms of like what happens to people in movies, it's not really crazy. He just sort of gets blown down this hallway and into like this metal grate. They say, I mean, he's not dead, he's he's in a coma, but he's in, like, really low brain state activity. They say that he, he gets killed, and so this, like, going back to what we were saying earlier, that this feels like the end scene of a movie, like, it's like the good guy just won, this bad guy that he's been chasing for six years for killing his son has been killed, justice has been awarded, and he goes home to his wife, and he's like, I got him, it's over. I got him, Eve. It's over. It's over. Oh, Sean. I'll make it up to you and Jamie, I promise. I'll put in for a desk job. I'll, I'll do counseling, sit down, talk about Mike. I'll do it. Anything you want. I just want you. Well, good, because that's what you're going to get. <laughs> And, like, they're both just so happy. And it's 20 minutes into the movie, but, like, it feels like the last 20 minutes of any other action movie. It's great. The marketing for that movie really centered around that shootout as being the big one. I mean, you see shots of later action sequences, but they really made you want to think that that was going to be the grand finale. You have a plane crashing into into a hangar. Of course that's going to be the money shot, right? Wrong. And it does, like, story-wise, it does a really smart job of subverting the audience's expectations right out of the gate. I wasn't prepared <laughs> for this much action right from the start. No no one does this. Like, this just isn't natural. You're ready pretty much for anything they're about to throw at you, right? You know, like, we just saw this insanity. They're setting up the world. Like, th- that's the reality, you know, right there. And now when we're getting on with the movie, it's just going to be like, all right, well, whatever you throw at me, like... Like, I don't care how crazy it is because like, I'm ready to I'm ready to believe. <laughs> and like you're sort of like as a movie watcher, you're like watching trying to figure out where it's gonna go. Cause kinda like The Rock, like we talked about with The Rock, like there's like this whole them getting to the rock and killing all these bad guys, right? You forget about the hostages. Like you there's this huge action scene with the plane trying to take off and this huge massive shootout, 
and Cage dies, you almost kind of forget that there's, like, the bomb, right? Like, there's so much that just happened. You're like, oh, right, the big plot to blow up Los Angeles, that's still in motion. And so Travolta goes back to the office, and everybody's congratulating him. He just doesn't care. Like, he's like, think about all the men we lost. He means all their names. He has his closure, but, like, I guess he's sort of looking for a meaning, right? Like, he just spent the last six years hunting this guy down. He kills this guy, but now, like, what does his life mean? Right. He's he's sort of, like, existentialist and fatalist and sad about the whole thing. He's focusing on the negative. Everybody's like, rah, rah, we got Caster Troy. He's still moping, and I think that's sort of a dramatic device to advance Archer's obsession with Caster Troy. Like, he can't let it go because of the grief that he caused him. And you can see that, like, it's impacted every stage of his life, right? Like, when he goes home and he talks to his wife about how it's over, he's like, look, like, I'll get a desk job, I'm going to stop obsessing over him, I'll go to therapy. Like, it just seems like you, you, you have to envision, and you sort of see it a little bit later with how his daughter acts out, but you have to envision, like, this la- the last six years of his life, it seems like Sean Archer was probably never home or when he was home, he like wasn't really mentally there. Like he was thinking about Cage. Everything in his life was trying to lead up to this moment. And now that the moment happened, there's nothing left in his life. He went crazy because he was thinking about Nick Cage. That's like the point, right? Is that like in order to like catch this guy, he sort of had to start thinking like him and being like him, and, right? And get like crazy and obsessive and like nuts about his work and be the best and all that and like push everything else away. And I mean, we're just gonna get you know. He even goes home and in a few moments. He's gonna like take. His word back on his wife like he goes home and he's like it's over it's done and then he's gonna go home and be like you know it's there's actually one more thing i gotta do like he's just like too grief stuck in that grief zone you know i think it's like he doesn't have his son even after all this work so he's not happy like he just can't let it go and like it, it seems really like the next day like the day after he kills cage he goes to work and they're like well we found this zip disc like hey guys remember zip disc from the 90s we found this zip disc with this plot to blow up los angeles you got to go do something and so he goes and interviews pollux and pollux isn't talking he says he's only going to talk to caster but caster's dead so like what's going to happen and they say that they say to travolta like there is one other possibility i like one thing i didn't understand is if you're pollux troy i realize you're insane but your brother's dead the plan is over there's a bomb in the city in the jail they're going to send you to most likely in this movie their jail is somewhere in the greater los angeles area you know he's in the blast zone you might as well tell him where the bomb is maybe like he just doesn't have anything to live for anymore like his brother mm. is dead this plan went to shit and it's just if he can't be with his brother if he can't be hanging out with the only person person in the world who loves him it's not worth like he'd rather take out the city the city that killed his brother than live himself i don't know Mm, i like that and so they go to the walsh institute where dr malcolm walsh who's played by colm fior who will return in the next movie in city of angels in a pretty major role and he's dr walsh the the titular dr walsh of the walsh institute travolta finds out that they're keeping cage alive that they say he's a turnip but he's still, he's not dead. Like, and this sort of, like, is a little bit of a shock. Dr. Walsh then explains, like, we can do, like, we might be able to help you out and get a little information out of Pollux. I could put an agent in his cell. Maybe Pollux will let it slip. Oh, come on. He's a paranoid sociopath. The only person he talked to about that bomb is his brother. And he's dead. There is one other possibility. What if you could walk into Air One prison? And give Pollux a nice, big brotherly hug as Castor Troy. I have no idea what you're talking about. Let me try. 
Malcolm Walsh. I run the bio cover unit for special ops. I know who you are. But you don't know what I can do. Physical alteration, augmentation. Dr. Walsh can alter the likeness, even the voice of a government witness. With the new anti-inflammatories, healing takes days, not weeks. Your blood types won't match, but Pollux won't know that. Height difference is negligible. Skin pigment, eye pigment, both almost identical. We'll use laser shears for the hairline, micro plugs for body hair. We'll do an abdominoplasty, take care of those uh, love handles. But all that's the easy part. Here's the real science. This is a state-of-the-art morphogenetic template. The inside is modeled on your skull. The outside exactly like Troy's. Then we fit his face on top. Not a replica, but the real thing. Then we simply connect the muscles, tear ducts, and nerve endings. So you want to take his face and mine? Borrow. The procedure's completely reversible. You think that I want to do this? <laughs> no. No. There's no one else, Sean. No. This is kind of like Q's lab, right? Like, that's like the parallel I'm drawing. They wanted John Boo to set this in the future, but he wanted to set it in the present so like people wouldn't be distracted by like, all this crazy future technology. They could just focus on, like, the psychological elements. But, like, they have this crazy future technology. Like, they're 3D printing ears, like, which is in real life. Like, they just figured out how to do, like, a year or two ago. I would say that it isn't that far-fetched that they have the technology in this movie because the way I view it, it's set in the current day, 1997, and there are absolutely sci-fi elements, but I don't think you need it to be set in the future to have that technology. It could have been some underground experimental thing that they were running. Yeah, I absolutely agree, and there's other movies around this time that are set in the present day, yet there's like fantastical elements to, you know, for the MacGuffin or what have you. So this is sort of in the same vein. It's present day, and this is just, you know, top secret, you know, state of, this is state of the art in modern day sort of reality. Even with all this like state of the art modern technology, whatever, like this crazy technology, Travolta thinks the idea is crazy, and like it is crazy. Like they want to completely change the way he looks to be like Cage, and like it's nuts. He wants to find. He's like, what exactly are you asking me to do? This is Arno. Your plan? No, this is a black bag operation, strictly off the books. You can't tell Lazaro, and you can't tell your wife. Oh God. What are you asking me to do? Okay, let's see. You're asking me to break the law, risk my neck, and you're asking me to put in the dark all the people that love me and trust me. I'll do it. You know what's really like interesting about this whole face changing business is like I, I kind of see this you know there's a little sci-fi elements there's kind of like horror stuff we're going to get into all this identity issue it, it feels like you know like a freaky friday type movie you know or, yes. or like a like father like son where people it's like a mind swap film you know what i'm talking about that's where i'm starting to see it it is at the end of the day basically just a mind swap film like it's not meant to be like that it only becomes that when cage wakes up you're right like they basically just swap minds because everything else is identical except for that bullet scar that reminds Travolta of Michael that they have to remove, but they, well, he wants to make sure that they put back. Other than that, like they are just basically just swapping minds. 
And really, would that technology have been any more preposterous at this point? Like, if he had just said, like, we can transfer your consciousness into his body, like, I would have probably bought that just as easily. Yeah. I like the horror sort of slant of the body mutilation angle they go with, and definitely when Caster Troy wakes up without his face, it's just like a wonderful sequence there. Makes me want to see a John Woo horror film that I don't think I'll ever get to see, but there's lots of cool touches. It's the closest thing we'll ever get to a David Cronin directed action. <laughs> I mean, like, you sort of get that blend of that horror and action, whether you want to talk about Wu or Cronenberg or whoever, but, like, you see them, like, with, like, a crazy laser just literally, like, cutting people's faces off. <laughs> and <laughs> they show, you know, Travolta's partner, they show CCH Pounder, and everybody's, like, losing their mind. They're not in the same shot, so you just sort of cut from the action to reaction shots. They're, they can't believe what they're seeing. Like, it's just, it's insane. Yeah, I think they're speaking for the audience at that point, right? Like, they're right along with us. It's like, <laughs> they're like, this is our idea. Maybe this isn't such a good idea after all, but it's, like, way too late for that, you know? And then maybe they should have told a couple more people what they were up to, but, you know, too late. <laughs> <laughs> and that'll come back to play a little bit later. So this is sort of, we need to figure out how we're going to refer to them. Because, Mike Flynn, I don't know, I mean, I'm sure you've listened to a few of the episodes that we've done so far, but we always have a problem here referring to Cage as Cage as opposed to his character. So now we're referring to Cage or Caster or Travolta or Sean Archer. Like, it's all, like, they're all sort of the same thing. So I was calling them Cage Volta, Nick Cage's body with Travolta's mind. And Travolcage is Travolta's body with Cage's mind. I like the sound of that. Travolcage. 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 And there's Cage Volta. We're going to wait. I mean, we all we know what we're talking about, but like it's it's still worth sort of bringing up and trying to get on a common ground. So Cage Volta wakes up and like he's just stunned. Like he sees the mirror and he just can't believe that he's like it's crazy. Like that's almost this is like a movie in and of itself, right? Like, this would be enough that just a guy wakes up and he sees somebody's reflection that isn't him. Like, it's crazy. And even though he knew it was coming, he still sort of can't believe it. And he goes through, like, this big, like, stupid, goofy grin. And then I think the reality of the situation hits him, and he realizes that he now looks like the man he spent six years of his life hating, like, more passionately than he could hate anybody else ever. And he just has, like, a little freakout, kind of like Neo in The Matrix. It's just like he can't believe this. He can't accept this new reality that he's willingly become a part of. <laughs> Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! John! John! When this is over, I want you to take this face and burn it. Yeah, he's definitely, he feels alien, and it's even crazier because of the fact that, well, he looks like the very man he was working so many years to bring down. I mean, what if Michael Mann decided to make heat? with the plot of Face Off, and one day, Al Pacino ended up with Robert De Niro's face. Oh, that would have been amazing. <laughs> face Off is the heat of summer blockbusters. 
You're right. This could have been the movie, like, a guy goes in for surgery and at the end, like, wakes up and they gave him the wrong face or something like that. And I keep wondering, could the mind, like, accept something like this in reality? Like, I think Cage does a good job of snapping and getting right to the edge and then they, like, bring him back, you know, and we get to see, like, that full range of Cage go through, like, his entire spectrum, right, in this one scene. (laughs) Like, first he's very mellow, then he's, like, screaming, F you! F you. And then he's like uh, mellow again and like accepting. And all the while, he sounds like John Travolta, which is very unnerving. He kind of goes through like the stages of grief, right? Like denial and anger and he doesn't really have bargaining, but like depression, then finally acceptance. Yeah, he still sounds like Travolta. And he's like, I still sound like me. Like, what's going on? They have this amazing technology to switch faces to completely transform your body. But the technology for the vocal thing is so delicate that a violent sneeze could ruin it? Like, that seems like a really poor... Any number of things could knock that out, especially because he's going to prison, right? It seems like that technology needs to be further along if you're going to be pulling this kind of job. Yeah, I think that's why my my little idea of just, like, swapping their mind... <laughs> then you don't have to worry <laughs> about the voice or anything. But, I, you know, I'm at least glad they tried to address it. And, you know, well, I don't believe they actually they pull it off and they use like sort of a twist of humor to do it i think that helps sort of land the blow of what kind of like unrealistic technology in a world of unrealistic technology like i buy this the least and so to train the voice chip or to sort of set the voice chip to speak like cage they have to have travolta repeat one of his lines and i guess they got it from maybe the stewardess on the airplane was wearing a wire the line that cage volta has to repeat is peach i could eat a peach for hours like of all the things they could they could have cage saying that's the line that he has to repeat i still sound like me i've implanted a microchip on your larynx it's fantastic but you'll have to be careful Pressure, sharp blow, even a violent sneeze could dislodge it. Just repeat what you hear. Peach. I could eat a peach for hours. Peach. I could eat a peach for hours. That's a scratchy tickle. Mm-hmm. Peach. I could eat a peach for hours. Peach. I can eat a peach for hours. Once again. Peach. I could eat a peach for hours. Perfect. That might have been like the last thing that agent heard, aside right, aside from a gunshot. Was <laughs> like that and suck on my tongue. What line would you rather repeat to get your throat working correctly? Uh, you know, like that's all I was thinking. I was like, ooh, it's it's kind of morbid. Like that's the last thing she heard. Now that Travolta is in Cage's body, their plan is for him to go to prison, to go where Pollux is being held, and to find out where the bomb is. And so they bring him to this helicopter to take him to this prison, which we later learn is an island out in the middle of the ocean. And um, later ripped off in Schwarzenegger's Stallone team-up film, Escape Plan. Kind of like Lockout, too? I mean, that's on the moon, or like that's outer space, <laughs> but like, it's like this just completely remote, completely inaccessible, yeah. ultimate supermax prison. 
Yeah, yeah, the obligatory, like, you know, place where all the worst of the worst go, right? This is where the Con Air plane was heading. It's a lot like the prison in Tango and Cash that Stallone and Kurt Russell get shipped <laughs> off to. It's like anarchy. It's like the end of the world. And the head prison guard is played by John Carroll Lynch, who was Zodiac made, Killer. Yes, well, he had made an impression on audiences in Fargo, as well as earlier in 97 with the classic Volcano. Another Fargo shout-out, because Travolta's boss is the dad from Fargo. Harv Presnell. Yes. What's sort of sad for Cage Volta, he's got so much to worry about already. Like, he looks like his worst enemy, he's being willingly sent to prison, and then on top of all that, his new face itches. <laughs> like, like he's all shackled up, and he has to like, rub his face against the wall to just scratch it. Like, he's such a pathetic figure here. And it's amazing to see Cage as Cage being this crazy, evil supervillain, and then Cage as Travolta, completely harmless and helpless and scratching his face against the wall. Mike, you were saying this in a couple podcasts ago, we love movies where we sort of get two Cage for the price of one. It's like, we definitely get that here. Like, I feel like Cage is sort of playing a guy trying to figure out, like, okay, I'm trapped in another man's body, but we also get Travolta soon. I don't want to jump the gun, but he he's like a full-on Nicolas Cage impression. So yeah. we got Nicolas Cage, and then we got Travolta as Nicolas Cage, you know, even though we have Cage doing a bit of Travolta. But yeah, it's, it's more than I could have ever wanted, you know? And so they're leading Cage Volta to the airplane or to the helicopter, and all of his other FBI cohorts, like Margaret Cho and everybody, they're like, oh man, Archer's going to be so pissed when they find out that Castro Troy is alive. No one knows. Like, the only people who know that this is Sean Archer were the people that were in the room when the surgery was happening, which we soon find out was a really bad idea. We get to the prison, right? And everybody's in kind of gravity boots. Like here, again, the technology is sort of crazy, super futuristic, that the boots can be remote controlled to like lock down. They all kind of have tracking chips that you can watch sort of, it's sort of like a video game, right? Like you can see all these dots like moving around a map and see where all the prisoners are. Yeah, it's totally a high-tech prison. Like, the way they treat everybody is very barbaric, but all the guards have accessed this state-of-the-art technology, <laughs> well, state-of-the-art for 1997, sure. when dial-up and Netscape was considered the apex of internet speed. Guys, this prison does not adhere to the Geneva Convention. Like, no. It is off the map, allegedly. Like, we'll find out it's on an oil rig, uh, <laughs> like a disguise that one at least. I think this might have been remnants from like one of the futuristic drafts or something that got the prison was probably going to be like ultra super futuristic with like floating cells and like lava pits and like crazy stuff you couldn't imagine. Maybe it was on the moon. It's practically the prison from the Christopher Lambert vehicle fortress. I was thinking like they're one step away from wearing bombs around their neck like the beginning of Running Man right? When Cage Volta gets to prison he sort of adheres by that like the first stay in prison, you either got to kick someone's ass or become someone's bitch. And so, like, he starts, like, this crazy, huge fight. Watch your fucking mouth. Watch your fucking mouth! I'm Castor Troy! Yeah! I'm Castor Troy!
everybody knows him, but it's still like Travolta in his mind. So he's like, I, bu- I mean, Sean Archer busted you. Like he knows everybody there. And so he kind of like has an in on, you know, how to talk to them, but he still doesn't know how to talk as Cage. And I think that's not like a really sort of fascinating thing that he, to everybody else, like if you just see him walking around, like he's Caster Troy, but if you start talking to him, it's crazy that Pollux believes him, this closest person in his life, believes that this other guy... Would you believe that this guy was your brother if he looks identical to your brother but like doesn't seem like him? It would be freaky, for sure. It's a tough one, right? There's no reason to doubt it's not your brother. or so. You know what I'm saying? Like, only through talking to a person, it's tough. Like, uh, I almost expected, like, if Castor Troy got sent to this prison, he would come in making a ruckus. He'd be like, okay, I'm here. Like, let's party or something, you know? And, and Travolta kind of plays it like he's spaced out. He's getting, he's overcome with dread almost because he's in prison and the reality is smacking him in the face. And But yeah, when he sees Pollux, it's like Pollux almost immediately has like that doubt in his eyes, like just from the yeah. way he walks and talks and stuff. And yeah, Cage really has to like, Travolta, whoever, <laughs> he really needs to like... Cage Volta. Cage Volta. Cage Volta needs to like take advantage of this moment. Like that's what I think the scene is trying to make clear it's like you need to not only are you caught showing everyone you're not a bitch but like you also have to convince your brother that he's your brother yeah as this is all happening we cut back to the walsh institute and cage wakes up and i guess calls his goons Lars, it's me believe it someone uh, they took switch my for some fucking... <laughs> but it's cool. We're gonna deal with it. <laughs> oh yes, we're gonna deal with it. And his goons go and rally up Dr. Walsh and his crew, and they bring him in and cages and like he's just watching the surgery like it's just such a crazy like again just like everything he can do to be this crazy mastermind evil villain he's watching surgery of scientists taking his face off he's sitting there we don't see his face until the reflection of the glasses but he's sitting there without a face watching his face be taken off this like completely you know stripped down dehumanized person is in the ultimate power seat What's this about? Dr. Walsh! I was just uh, enjoying some of your greatest hits here. Oh, oh, I hope you don't mind. I, I, uh, I partook in your groovy, uh, your groovy painkillers. You know, this is fabulous work. This is, this is, oh. <laughs> Bravo! <laughs> Bra- fucking bo. Oh, God, this is excellent. Bravo. Bravo! What do you want? Take one goddamn guess. Well, I think it implies that Castor Troy is something of a sadomasochist. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I I mean, like, more of that Joker's coming through here, almost like after Joker got his surgery in the Tim Burton Batman, and he, like, you know, sees himself, and he likes it, and, you know, it drives him crazier. I feel like this is one of the moments in Castor Troy's life where he's like, yeah, life is just insane. Like, this is proof. I was right. Life is crazy. Do whatever you want. Be nuts. Like, I I don't know. He walks up to Dr. Walsh, who's wearing sunglasses, and, like, you just see the reflection (laughs) of his bloody 
faceless head. Like, it's exactly what you want. Like, we don't see the camera on his face, but, like, we see exactly, like, we're like, what does he look like without a face? And we see it, and it's horrifying and amazing. It's a very demented scene and a very weird moment, and something you don't see in a lot of big-budget action movies. The plot alone allows for that sort of thing. The fact that they push it to this kind of, like, Fangoria-friendly gore shot. It's, some, it's, it's something brilliant. It's really impressive. They're taking their R rating, and they're using it creatively, you know what I'm saying? Like, sneaking in this gore, like, for horror hounds that are out there in the audience, you know? Or just, like, trying to disgust people in the audience, or just, you know, putting a pin on how crazy this character is, that he'll walk around without a face. Like, it's all just, like, I feel like it fits the parameters here, and I'm glad it's in there. It's almost like, you know what? Fuck it. We're gonna get an R rating anyway. Let's just take <laughs> advantage of it. There's just, like, a nice amount of tact with that scene too in the way like it's edited and they don't linger on him and then you know it almost build up in your mind what it looks like for a guy not to have a face and you get these fleeting like shots almost like like cut like psycho or something very quickly and it's like oh it just adds fuel to your imagination whatever you're picturing is always going to be scarier than what's actually shown to you and so they show you just enough to give you the nightmares while still letting your brain sort of run with it how you will. While Cage is waking up, we cut back to the prison, and Cage Volta's talking to Pollux, and he, like, right away finds out the, the info he needs. He's like, hey, he basically says, hey, where'd we plant that bomb again? Bro, you gotta help me. I am so fried. If the psychos in here find out I'm misfiring, we're both gonna be dead meat. Shock treatment? What's the matter with you? Did they operate? I was in a coma. Jesus, you're still so fucking paranoid. Aren't they giving you your medication in here? What was my medication? Pollux, I hand-fed you those pills for years. Vivex. I haven't forgotten that. It's just everything else. It's... Senses, my reflexes, my memory. It's like a tab of bad Quantrex. I don't even know why that fucking Yeti jumped me yesterday. We do both? You had a sex sandwich with his wife and his sister the night he was sent here? I guess that explains why he's so upset. Wow. <laughs> We're gonna blow up LA, bro. Yeah, cool. All right, rub my nose in it, why don't you? Ten million dollar design and now... Those militia nut jobs get to keep their cash? So fucking unfair. That bomb you built does deserve an audience. It's a work of art. It belongs in the Louvre. Yes, it does. Oh well. I guess the LA Convention Center will have to do. It's sort of like, oh, good, the movie's over. Like, you know, we're 50 minutes in. He's got the information he needs. Let's just get on with this. But no, after Cage wakes up and has them put him into Travolta's body, or make his body look like Travolta, he then kills all the doctors, kills all the FBI agents who knew that Caster Troy is actually Sean Archer, and then just to rub it in, he goes and visits Cage Volta in prison. Wait, you get looking. It's like looking in a mirror, only not. Sure. Now that is between us, okay? But you were... In a coma? 
Nothing like having your face cut off to disturb your sleep. Read the newspaper lately? You killed them? Well, look, beats paying the bill, huh? Come on, I mean, uh, if a facelift costs five grand. See anything you like? Do you know? I torched all the evidence that proves you're you. Okay, so, wow, looks like you're going to be in here for the next hundred years. I have got to go. I've got a government job to abuse and a lonely wife to fuck. Did I say that? I'm sorry, I didn't say that. I didn't make love to. God, I missed that face. Sorry, Agent Archer. No, uh, don't you worry about it, Mr. Walton. Clearly he's uh, had a traumatic childhood, and uh, thank you. This is like the main scene, right? This is the turning point in the film, why we all paid admission. <laughs> this is Nicolas Cage as John Travolta talking to John Travolta as Nicolas Cage. This is the thesis of the film right here, and it's quite an awesome scene. Very well done. And they show him sort of dousing all these doctors with gasoline and lighting them on fire. You know how like the, there's supposedly two people who know the recipe to Coke, and they can't be in the same place because they can't let the recipe die. You would think that if there's this crazy technology of being able to swap faces, there should be a second doctor who can do it, and that second doctor should be nowhere near the first doctor. Well, we find out there is a second doctor at the end, and he's in D.C. Yeah, but I don't point... even know if that's like a second doctor who's like who specializes in this. I think it's just like the best from D.C., and he's just going to try to wing it, I guess. Travol Cage, which is Cage looking like Travolta, shows up and basically is like, hey, guess what? Your life is ruined. You're going to be in prison for the next hundred years. I win. Where does he go to rub it in even more than talking to Cage Volta? But he goes to Travolta's house, to Travolta's wife. This is Travolta doing a full Cage impression. It almost feels like he's watched all the Cage movies up to this point and is sort of channeling Cage as Cage channels Cage and just giving, like, one of the best Cage performances in history, and it's not even Cage giving it. Well, I suppose it was only a matter of time before you forgot where we lived. Break. Every house in this block looks the same. Then I spotted you, Eve. I want it all to be Eve. So, how was your vital assignment? Which one was that? <laughs> how should I know, Sean? Oh, 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 yes, the um, the out of body experience, yes, that one. Where are you going? Hmm? To the hospital? No. No. What's the matter? Sean, come on. Oh, what? Quit teasing me. Stop it. I'm still really hurt, okay? There are leftovers in the fridge. No, no. I'm gonna stay hungry for you. My peach. Give me a touch. Sean, come on. What, what are you doing? What are you doing? Eve, I hate to see you go, but I love to watch you leave. At this point in my life, like, I was a huge Travolta fan, you know, I was riding the wave of his comeback, I was apologizing for stuff like Michael and Swordfish. Battlefield and, Earth? Yeah, you know, that's a guilty pleasure, but I, I think <laughs> that came late, even later, but, I mean, the point is, like, he 
was at the top of his game, right? Like, I don't think he was ever better. And this is just insane because, yeah, he did watch those tapes, I think, because he is just Nicolas Cage in this moment, like, in this role. Like, he is pulling it off for me. I'm loving it. That's one of the things that makes Face Off so brilliant, in my opinion, is that it pushes both Travolta and Cage to do impressions of each other, organically so. They get to play both the hero and the villain. There's a dual purpose to everything. That's the gimmick. That's why I think they had so much trouble casting the movie and trying to get the perfect duo and why you would have so many of these proposed combinations fall through. Like, I know Michael Douglas and Harrison Ford was one of the early proposals that they had. Um, Michael Douglas is actually an executive producer on it. The movie was supposed to be made, like, I think, like, ten years or something earlier. Vegans never lined up, and so Michael Douglas, I guess, still loved the project, became an executive producer. Like, we talk a lot in Cage Club about, like, what could have been, right? Like, if the best of times had been picked up into a series, if Cage had been 18 when Fast Times was filmed, if everything could have been so different. It's interesting to think about, but, like, I also, like, it's not worth, because, like, this is the movie, like, this is the face-off that we love. Like, this is honestly maybe the reason that we're doing Cage Club. It's, like, great to talk about, like, you know, Michael Douglas and Harrison Ford, but, like, Cage and Travolta, that's, that's what this movie is, and that's why everybody loves it. Right. It's a perfect combo, and I cannot see any other two actors playing the roles. And you have these two actors at the zenith of that point in their careers. You had Travolta hot off Pulp Fiction, and he was back on the A-list. He had all these offers lined up. You had Nick Cage hot off of his Oscar, ready to go in action hero mode. It's just a perfect example of things just coming together and all the cards being laid out just right. Each of these guys sort of have very specific styles of acting, you know, yeah. like Cage, we mentioned, like he's got range, but you always know Nick Cage, like he's behind the makeup or whatever. And same with Travolta, I feel like on a different part of the spectrum, but Travolta acts like Travolta, you know, so since these actors had such specifically sort of defined styles for each other, I think that also helped work so well that that lended well for them to be able to do impressions of each other, you know, they could see See these mannerisms that repeated over and over, or these line readings that repeated these emphases on certain words and things like that. So, yeah, it's just like this perfect storm. It is just everything lining up perfectly. Based on how much of Cage we've seen, I think we couldn't act like him, but we know we could describe how to portray him, and like just Travolta nails it. And so, like, that's why when he goes home to talk to Eve, to talk to Travolta's wife, calling her my peach, just, like, walking around and looking at his house and just, like, so disappointed in his boring life. It's like, oh, what a loser. And him eyeing up the daughter, right? Like, we know that Cage in every movie gets the girl. The closest thing to him getting a girl in this is Travolta's underage daughter. Like, it's so Cage in what we've come to know him as, but it's also just Travolta being Cage. Adds, like, this twist that just makes everything great. And, and, you know, I think Travolta was starting to get into a phase where he was really acting in a very Nicolas Cage-esque fashion, and he was playing twisted parts. Like, Broken Arrow, he's got the whole mustache twirling routine down pat. And in this, he's full-on. In The Punisher, he's playing a very twisted, off-the-wall, weird guy that likes to dance around and menace people. I can't even describe, I can't even put into words how much I love him in this scene. He sees Travolta's daughter, he's just like, ooh, the plot thickens. It's like the perfect music choice, it's the perfect portrayal, it's everything. <sighs> the plot thickens. Hang on a second. 
I'll have to call you back. You're not respecting my boundaries. I'm coming in, Jane. Janie? I don't think you heard me, Jamie. You've got something that I crave. Papa's got a brand new bag. Clarissa left those here. I won't tell Mom if you don't. When did you start smoking? You'll be seeing a lot of changes around here. got a brand new band. Oh! He's sort of like, in the movie, lining everything up. Like, he's going to go to prison, taunt Travolta in Cage's body. He's going to go home and, you know, presumably compromise Travolta's wife. And then the next thing he does is he's going to go basically cut Pollock's a plea deal. Pollock's has an easier time accepting that this is Cage than Travolta's wife has an easier time accepting that Cage is actually Travolta. I think Pollux has a easier time accepting that Travolta is his brother than Cage is his brother when he comes to prison. You know? Yeah, like he seems to be like, yeah, I had a feeling something was kind of fishy, and you know, <laughs> now my paranoia is sort of paying off. I was right. And so their whole plan is to basically defuse the bomb, save the day, become a national hero, <laughs> so that he can then become basically the most powerful most respected, most admired man in the world. You're supposed to be snitching, making me look good. Look good. Mm-hmm. Seeing that face on you makes me afraid my tiramisu might come back up. Well, think about me. This nose, this hair, this ridiculous chin. Brother, we're going straight. Mm-hmm. My goodness. Did you exchange brains as well? The first thing I need you to confess to is the location of the bomb. What about our $10 million? What about when I become an American hero for defusing the bomb? What's that worth? Know that. Thank you. Next question. (laughs) You're not the only one in the family with brains. No. Although now I am the only one with the looks. Touché. And so he cuts a deal with Pollux. He says, if you're going to tell us where the bomb is, we'll let you out. He just rolls into the building where the bomb was set, tells the Hurt Locker guys, he's just like, hey, I got this, I got this. And then he just like strolls in, diffuses it like with one or two seconds left. It just walks out of the building triumphant, save the day, save the city, and then looks at the camera and says, Interception. Now our side's got the ball. Sorry. There's never any other football references in this entire movie. It's just like such a great line. Like it makes no sense, but it's just so cool, that line. The other thing I love about that scene is how Travolcage is pretty much playing the whole thing as some kind of ruse, like a 60s Batman episode. Like, you you would totally expect to see the Joker or the Riddler trying to do the same thing. I also love that his new plan, now that he looks like this FBI agent, is to be the head of the Global Anti-Terror <laughs> Task Force, eliminate yeah. all of Caster Troy's true enemies, all the other terrorists out there, and then he'll, what, sit back and drink Mai Tais on the beach? I mean, he'll just be like, is he going to run for president? He could become the most respected man in the world and become friends with all these, like, the rich and famous and the powerful, or he could, in theory, eliminate all of Caster Troy's enemies and then revert to a life of crime, become the number one 
terrorist who gets all the jobs. Like any, like whether he wants to go for good or bad, like he's sort of in the catbird seat right now. Like I said, he's it's it's supervillain psychology. Yeah, he's gonna pull a full on like Winter Soldier Hydra moment at the end, right? Where like he's gonna get but, in charge of the FBI and then reveal that we're evil. It's like that. But instead of Robert Redford, it's Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor to <laughs> all this stuff. Because he's so high camp, and he's so flamboyant. And speaking of flamboyant, the next scene, he goes to the FBI office, and he's like this hero, like everybody loves him for saving the day, and he's making jokes, and Margaret Show is like, did you have a surgical procedure? He's like, he's like, wait, like you know about that? And she's like, did, did you get the stick removed from up your ass? And he's just like, ha, 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 this totally other guy. President calls. He's like, tell the president to hold. I need to talk to my wife. It's sort of everything that the wife wanted, right? She wasn't happy in her marriage, but like she would have been happy married to Travolta if he just paid her more attention. I guess putting the president on hold is an extreme example, but like it's it's a really like so, sort of sweet and like it shows just how diametrically opposite these two characters are, right? But, but we still get that flamboyant cage feel that Travolta's performance because he does that same spank that he does to the choir girl, he spanks the office person, like his secretary or the FBI agent, and she's, like, not against him. Like, she's sort of into it, too. Yeah, they each sort of do things that the other character does previously. Like you said, like, he grabs her butt kind of like we see him when he's Nick, played by Nick Cage grab the girl's butt at the beginning. And then there's a moment where Nick Cage utters Travolta's famous catchphrase, ain't it cool? They're trying to, like, borrow each other's flair at certain moments to sell who's in whose body in case, like, you're following along. And so as Travolta's, or excuse me, Travolta Cage's life is getting better and better, <laughs> he's admired by the public, he's admired by his co-workers, Eve is sort of, like, really into it, like, he's just like this doting husband, just full of love. They cut to the prison, and we sort of see Cage Volta's escape attempt, right? He asks somebody, he's like, hey, how do we get out of these boots? And they say they don't take the boots off until we're about to do electroshock therapy. They have their exercise period, which is just them walking in a slow circle around, like, the cafeteria. He goes up to a guard who's smoking. He's like, hey, I ran out of cigarettes. Give me one. And then he, like, attacks the guard. Like, there's, like, this huge brawl, and he gets the cigarette, and then he gets taken off goes to electroshock therapy. What I like about this is that Cage first attempt at escape is successful. He, you know, yeah. how, how, how often is that the case? And never, really, <laughs> right? Like, he goes to get electroshock therapy, gets the boots taken off, somehow convinces a guard, like, again, just I guess just a stupid guard. He's like, hey, you got the cigarette. Might as well give me a light. There's a couple scenes in this movie where it seems like they both kind of have magic powers. Later in the movie... Travol Cage convinces his boss to have a heart attack, and here Cage Volta kind of convinces this man who just got electroshock therapy to wake up and attack the guards. It's almost like the face-off procedure gave them extra like mind control abilities. They become telekinetic. What's that X Files episode pusher? Right, like he can just sort of push the will onto other people. <laughs> this is the guy that attacked him when he got to jail because, as we find out, Pollock says you had a threesome with his wife and his sister. And <laughs> so he's getting shock treatment while they bring in Archer. <laughs> I'm just going to call him Archer because uh, he's Archer under the skin. And he's like, yeah, that wasn't me, this and that. Like, what do you say we break out of this place? And yeah, like the guy just had his brain scrambled, but I guess the opportunity has presented itself and there's no time like the present. So yeah. 
yeah, he's up, and they're partners now. I do want also want to mention something. The prison segment of this film boasts not one, but two of Patricia Arquette's ex-husbands. Yeah, really? Nicolas Cage and Thomas Jane. Oh, that's right. That is Thomas Jane. Holy disguise. And in sort of similar coincidence, they both would go on to play B-level Marvel characters. They play <laughs> Ghost Rider and the Punisher. Yes, they would. So there's a lot of Cage connections between Cage and Thomas Jane. So Cage Volta gets out, overloads the system. There's a prison riot. This is when we learn the prison is on an island. Gets outside, and there's a chopper, I guess, just sort of around just in case. He, like, jumps off the prison into the water, and the chopper basically just says, yeah, whatever, like, he's probably dead. It just flies away. And then somehow, we don't know how, we don't really see how, but he must swim from the prison to Los Angeles? Jason Bourne did it. I guess, but, like... Here's the thing. You bring up an interesting (laughs) point, Mike. Jason Bourne could do it, because he had the training. Sean Archer, two days ago, he was sort of like this overweight guy at a desk who, you know, yeah, he could fly a helicopter and, like, chase a Humvee, but, like, for all intent and purpose, he wasn't, like, in fighting shape, but now he just broke out of like a supermax prison and he's gonna swim like 10 miles to shore they couldn't at least like put some sharks in the water or something like gun turrets on the side of that thing we cut back to los angeles and they go travolta goes and this is again right like how uh cage volta was trying to figure out how to speak as cage Travolta Cage is trying to figure out how to live as Travolta, and they have to go, it's it's Michael, his son's birthday, they're going to his grave to lay flowers on his grave and to remember him, and he just doesn't remember, because, like, why would he remember? They're going through the same thing in just very different situations, and then he gets back to the office, and they're like, hey, did you hear Castor Troy escaped? You turned your beeper off. Yes, well, my son's birthday. Well, uh, here's some poetic justice, sir. Castor Troy's dead. He got killed trying to escape from marijuana. Where's his body? I want to see his body. It hasn't been recovered yet. It hasn't been recovered yet? Get the LAPD on this. Even if he is alive, Castor isn't stupid enough to come back to the city. (sighs) You must. You must trust me. He's already here. It's interesting when he's trying to live as Archer. We'll see pretty soon, like, what he's used to, the hangouts and his hideouts, that's more his speed. But he's trapped in suburbia, man. Like, it's a fish out of water scene for him. And he, like, finds his wife's diary and compromises her by seducing her with a date night. He's just going deeper into his plan of getting at Archer. Like, he's got his nemesis in jail for life, and now he's just going to have his wife. And who knows, in a few months when he gets bored, maybe he'll kill everybody and just move It also implies that Castor Troy is a master chef, as evidenced by the four or five lobsters that are in that bowl of Brussels sprouts. He prepares this, like, romantic feast. The fact that Travolcage is this, like, the most loving version of Eve's husband that she's ever had makes her refusal to accept Cage Volta that her actual husband, who has returned in the body of her mortal enemy, because he goes, he comes back from the prison, and he, like, warns her, like, hey, he's not who he says he is, and she just, and rightfully, like, doesn't believe him. It's even amplified even more because she doesn't want to believe. Like, she's so, like, this is probably the happiest that she's been 
probably since before Michael died, right? That her husband loves her, he doesn't seem obsessed with anything anymore, and now there's, like, the most hated person in her life is saying, I'm actually your husband, that guy you think is your husband, it's not him. She's she's sort of in disbelief when she hears it, because she's never met Caster Troy. Caster Troy is sort of this phantom, because she lives the domestic life. She knows the normal Sean Archer, not the obsessive FBI agent Sean Archer. She only knows him as this apparition that's haunted his life for years. Yeah, she's almost been kept, like, separate from that, you know. Whereas Archer's been chasing Troy all these years. He's got to know his his associates, you know, what he likes for breakfast, all this kind of stuff. Caster Troy could give a shit about Sean Archer's life. Like, in the beginning, he even gets his daughter's name wrong, where he's like, I'll get little Janie and go to the house. Is she a peach yet? And then later, <laughs> he gets her name wrong again and has to, like, look at the pillow and stuff. It's kind of funny how, like, I don't know, like, he's caught off guard at, like, the strangest little moments and stuff. But then I feel bad for this wife man she is just put through the ringer she finally gets what she wants and it's much like her husband like he got what he wanted and then like the nightmare really began and now she got what she wanted and it's like the nightmare is just about to begin for her too like you just can't get what you want in this universe what you just said is a good point that about how Sean Archer knows everything about Caster Troy, so when he's in his body when he is Cage Volta he's able to go to his friend's hangout he meets up with Gina Gershon. He doesn't necessarily know how to be how to be Caster Troy, but he knows enough about him and knows about enough about his associates that he's able to fit in without giving himself away too much. And so that's exactly what he does, right? He goes to Cage's friends. It's presented with Cage's stash. He tells them all that he wants to go and get Sean Archer. Like he's like, I'm going to get him. Like this is what I want to do now. I'm not going anywhere. What that? I'm going to get Sean Archer. With your help. How are we supposed to do that? He's vulnerable at home. No. And this is Sean Archer we're talking about. This isn't just some boy scout. Fitch. Well, no, besides, his house is probably alarmed up the wazoo. Code is 10-19-86. That's his dead son's birthday. Don't it just break your heart? How is it that you know so much about Sean Archer? Uh, I, uh, sleep with his wife. I do want to point out when he gets that box of things, there's a pack of chiclets. In Deadfall, if you remember, Eddie, played by Cage, is very obsessed with chiclets. It's Cage connection. It's a real deep Cage connection. Do you want to give out a shout-out to my friend Alexa for pointing that out to me. One thing I love about this scene is something I always love about like undercover missions and stuff for cops and stuff when the cop has to like do drugs to fit in, you know, and he's like maybe he's never done them before or he's like <laughs> given a extra heavy dose or something like that. The face No more drugs for that man. It was kind of funny how they went that route because Caster Troy is like, he smokes pot, he pops pills, you know, he does blow off naked girls. Like, he's that kind of guy, you know, he's a party animal, right? The girls in the lounge are like, I thought I was your peach. I thought I was your peach. I want to be your peach. The chicks love Caster Troy. Nick Cassavetti's like, how are you going to get Sean Archer? Like, what do you know about him? Like, sort of what Mike was saying earlier, right? Like, he doesn't care. Like, he, he couldn't be bothered to care about this guy. He's like, oh, I know the code to his 
his security system, and basically making fun of himself. He's like, oh, it's the, it's the birthday of his dead, his stupid dead son. The most sentimental, like, you know, every day when he locks up his house, he's thinking about his son, and now he uses it to his advantage to sort of, like, put himself down. Like, it's like this great reversal character moment. He learns more being his nemesis than Caster Troy will learn being his nemesis, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like it's a real opportunity for growth for Sean Archer to be trapped sure. in his enemy's body because he has been very tightly wound all this and that and like I don't know like moments like this where he allows himself to be like to indulge in things he would never allow himself to do because he's sort of forced he, to me it feels maybe it's like a little cathartic for him you know like he's getting a lot of stuff off of his chest in a very weird roundabout way I don't want to say like it's obvious because that sort of sounds like demeaning but like of course like he was always going to get more out of it because he's like this thoughtful you know law enforcement type guy right and like caster troy is just the kind of guy who lives in the moment who doesn't really care about what tomorrow is going to hold he's just worried about like what's happening now and like we see that in the next scene where he's just hanging out his house like bored out of his mind and he sees Jeannie get home with her boyfriend or whatever on that date he's just trying to like make out with her but she's not into it and he goes outside and like kicks through his window and like rips the guy out of the window like a little bit of a kiss of death flashback right where he's like grabbing the guy from that truck and just tossing him out and then he sort of delivers like this is kind of the most unusual cage advice and we're back to cage advice we should have been doing cage advice in every episode we sort of forgot this is sort of the most unusual cage advice so far because it's cage as travolta giving the cage advice and he says dress up like halloween and ghouls will try to get in your pants typical dad some guy has to rape me in underwear this isn't you now you haven't been the same since mike died hiding behind someone else's face hoping you wouldn't feel the pain it's not very progressive, and it's like the the, the worst counter whatever to rape. You know what I mean? Like it's it's terrible. Well, she advice, even says also... right. She's like, oh, blame the victim. Guy tried to rape me, and you're blaming me because of the way I look and everything. But then again, it isn't Archer, her dad. It is Castor Troy. Right. So <laughs> he's not going to sugarcoat it. Yeah, it's not like politically correct, but it's very Castor Troy, and you know. It's it's exactly the kind of advice that Cage of this Cage character would give, and he sort of continues to tell it like it is, and he he says that she's been hiding behind another face, and it's like whoa, like that's like the second time you know Margaret Show is talking about a surgical operation. He's now telling her that she's hiding behind another face. He sort of sees her the way that actual Sean Archer never has. It's so obvious why she's acting out that she wants attention, that her dad is obsessed with their dead brother. She can't get any attention from him. Within, you know, a couple of days of living with her, Caster Troy knows exactly why she's behaving the way she's behaving and tells it like it is and sort of connects with her. He gives her a knife, says, jam it in his leg, twist it, the wound won't close butterfly knife at that like it's another one of those great shots where like everything's been going at normal speed and then he's like you know about protection and he whips out this butterfly knife and it's like flipping around in slow motion (laughs) it looks awesome and stuff and butterfly knife will come back and kick ass also so as he's giving this advice to his daughter we cut back to cage volta in nick cassavetti's hideout 
and they see him in bed with Gina Gershon, and she's sort of, I guess, used to getting used and abused by Caster, and it's just like, oh, like this is what you want, right? And like Pollux is spying on them from across the street. There's like a whole lot going on in this scene. We sort of see how broken and damaged Gina Gershon is. We get a further example into how Caster Troy lives his life and treats the people in his life. We find out that he's got a son. That like This is another sort of surprise, Papa Cage meeting his kid for the first time. We see Pollux spying on them, knowing where he's going to go. And then we have Pollux calling Caster in the body of Travolta and having the FBI show up and set up snipers to take out, once and for all, Caster Troy, a.k.a. Sean Archer. This kind of shows more of Caster Troy's brutality because he is willing to kill his own friends in order to take out this guy at this point. You know, like he's just off the deep end. He, you know, get him at any costs, whatever it takes. I think that sort of goes back to like one of the two alternatives, right? That he's be- going to become this most prolific, powerful anti-terrorism person. So even all these other sort of like little smaller hired goons, take him out, rid the world of crime and whether he's going to become the ultimate crime lord or the ultimate savior, it's just part of his plan. Exactly. He wants to be the king of the world, and they don't explicitly mention that he wants to be the king of the world. The other big thing that we see in the scene is Sean Archer as Caster Troy looking at this five-year-old son and being reminded of Michael, right? Like, there's just so much emotional baggage to unpack in this scene. That's going to come back way later in the movie, but, like, this kid reminds him of who he was and sort of, I guess, like, revitalizes him on this mission. He's reminded again that he is this guy who ruined his life. This guy who ruined his life he thought was dead, but he's still out there. Worse than that, he's with his family. It revs him back up to sort of get rid of Caster Troy once and for all. It's a good thing he gets like that kick in the butt because that's when the SWAT team comes in and we get the bullet ballet here, <laughs> another one, everything going all over the place. And, and the little kid, though, with the headset. Now, I could have sworn that this was what a wonderful world, but it's actually somewhere over the rainbow. As covered by Olivia Newton-John. Which is crazy in and of itself. You know, Olivia Newton-John, a little bit of a Travolnection to Greece, right? Apparently, Paramount, like, refused... This is all according to the internet, but, like, Paramount refused to pay for the rights to the song, so John Woo paid for the rights to put this song in the movie. And then when the movie eventually became successful, he was paid back. It's sort of like a reflection of like, hey, like we're going to let you make the movie you want to make, but like we're not going to pay for song rights to like probably one of the most expensive songs, even though it's a cover, one of the most expensive songs of all time. It's total John Woo. Like I think the movie would have worked without it, but I understand what he wants and what he's going for because it's you got to see this through a child's eyes. You know what I'm saying? And like it's the innocence and it's the loss of innocence and it's all that and the juxtaposition of what somewhere over the rainbow means in context to what he's seeing. Yeah. You know, like in the at the end of the day, I'm glad it's there, but it's definitely you know one of those artistic flourishes that you wouldn't expect in the middle of a balls out action film. But That's the big out is brilliant it's an amazing raid and it's just everybody getting together and firing bullets and it's operatic in the best way possible that john woo would have done in his other films and the scene of pollux troy crashing through the ceiling that arguably should have been the way that caster troy died travolta and cage get their third face off of the film but their second sort of gunfight 
right? And they're in the atrium, I think. It's an atrium. It's They're still in, like, the yeah. loft area. And there's all, like, these mirrors set up, right? So we get, like, all that great mirror imagery that the movie's about. <laughs> and, you know, it's right there. I don't know what I hate wearing worse. Your face or your body? I mean, I enjoy boning your wife, but um, well, let's face it, we both like it better the other way, yes? So why don't we just trade back? You can't give back what you've taken from me. Oh, well. Plan B. Let's just kill each other. And I think, like, after that little shootout, Archer escapes to the roof, sees Pollux, and, like, kicks him, and he goes through the plate glass window or ceiling. It further proves, like, anything kind of goes in the situation, right? We see that later, before they really have, like, the main square off, Travolcage, a.k.a. Cage in Travolta's body, wants to kill Michael, quote-unquote Michael again, because he doesn't realize that this kid is his son. And so he sees Cage Volta, he sees Sean Archer as Cage, connecting with this kid. What better way to ruin this guy's life again, just like in a little meaningless way, than to kill this another innocent little kid? So he goes to shoot the kid, but instead shoots Nick Cassavetes, right? Apparently he had been hooking up with Gina Gershon. There's so much like relationship stuff here, but like, it almost doesn't matter. Cage, Caster Troy, who's in the body of Sean Archer, is just pure evil with no regard for any human life but his own. He just wants to ruin Sean Archer's life and just continue to become the most respected admired man in the world it's the grip of insanity to me you know like at this moment this is now he he can't really hide being archer anymore because like his brother's dead like his friends are dead he's had to kill his own friends to catch this guy he's gonna be pretty much like unleashed for the rest of this movie i feel i don't think that as a character he's trying to sort of play ball you know what i'm saying i don't feel like he's as in hiding anymore as he was earlier in the film. To answer your question about uh, Cassavetes and Gershon, they're brother and sister in this movie, and I guess since they're about to go out in a hail of bullets, they do a little Luke and Leia and <laughs> kind of give each it's other real, a big wet one. It's real uncomfortable. This is like sort of like the dark night of the soul for Travolcage for Caster Troy. He's mourning the loss of his brother who's been kicked through the window by Sean Archer. The FBI agent comes in and he's just like, why do you care? Why are you so sad? It's just Pollux Troy <laughs> just turns and shoots the guy in the head and then goes back to work and everyone is sort of like they're mourning the loss of all these dead agents but they're also like this was sort of like a kind of successful raid-ish time has named him man of the year but he doesn't care he's so broken up that like losing his brother this brotherly bond was the only thing that mattered in the world now that Pollux is officially 100% dead Caster just doesn't care about anything nope yeah, he blows off, like, the cover of Time magazine, the guy. <laughs> if the president, you know, called, like, he would blow him off again, too. You know, he'd probably blow off his wife at this point. He's pretty much done. I don't think he thought that he was this touchable. You know what I mean? Like, sort of reality check for him at this point. Also might be feeling a little bit like he understands maybe what Archer went through when he accidentally killed, like, his son, right? He's like, so this is what true loss is, you know, for yeah. the first time. So that's kind of interesting. 
interesting. This is like when we're like we find out that the government is sort of getting a little suspicious about how successful Sean Archer has been. How are you? How have you been able to like diffuse all the stuff? Like, what's really going on here? And his boss is like, we we need to talk to you. We need to sit down. This is when he basically convinces him to have a heart attack and dies. Meanwhile, in another part of town. Cage Volta goes home, like, really honestly kind of creepy, just, like, sneaking around his house. I mean, it is his house, but he doesn't look like himself. And he's talking to his wife, who's rightfully freaked out. He sort of pulls out a lot of the stops in terms of trying to convince her that he's actually Sean Archer. But, like, I was thinking, like, just rub your hand on his face, you know? (laughs) Face waterfall. (laughs) Face waterfall. Like, what? how did this get made called the face waterfall? Like, just do that, like, because nobody knows about that. But he does it to the picture, but he doesn't do it to his wife. The only thing he can say is, look, he and I have different blood types. Just test his blood. Because she's a doctor, right? So what better way to convince her of his innocence or her supposed husband's guilt than by medical scientific proof he's a different person? It's like the perfect screenwriting device, right? Like everything about them was so similar except for what was on the inside, you know what I'm saying? Like it's the one thing you can't change is like blood type and things like that. And I call this scene the Frankenstein's kind of scene because like Cage is like, don't look at me, I'm a monster. <laughs> So, I don't know. He garners a lot of sympathy for me in this moment as a character. He's telling him about the the first date, right? Like, oh, this yeah. girl I took out, she like ate hard candy, and we looked for a dentist. Oh, but it was like, he was so well, drunk, dent- he fixed the wrong tooth. <laughs> like, what <laughs> the hell? And so that made us fall in love. Like, she's still not willing to accept that this is her husband in the room, but it's enough of a doubt that she, in bed that night, pricks Travolta's arm, Travolcage's arm, draws a little bit of blood, goes to the hospital to test the blood. Again, Cage Volta's there, like, really kind of creepy. She tests the blood. It turns up wrong. Travolcage shows up with his goons. He's like, all right, I'm going to get him now, but he's gone. Eve plays it off. She doesn't act like anything's wrong. By this point, she's like, I, I know what's really going on here. we got to figure out how to fix this situation. One thing that was amazing to me is when Travolta comes in and is like, where is he? Where is he? And he pulls back like a blanket from the patient's head that yeah. she's working on. The dude has like half of his face, like the skull is exposed. Like the yeah, guy. Yeah, horrific. It's like a, like a horror. Another one of those like, this guy had his face off. Like what's going on? We're getting toward the final confrontation and it's going to take place at Travolta's boss's funeral and so everybody's getting there and Cage Volta tells Eve he's just like keep Jamie away from it like keep our daughter away from it make sure she's not there this is where it's all going to go down like we're going to end it once and for all right here it's a weird place for a lot of John Woo's indulgences to just come together all at once you've got the shootouts you've got the Mexican standoffs you've got doves you even have the lighting of the candle in a church where, like, I remember, like, in, I think the killer and the killer lived in a church, yep. and he would the always church. sort of light a candle before he'd get into a gunfight. Troll Cage is in the front with Eve. Cage Volta gives, like, an altar boy <laughs> a picture of Michael, and he hands it to Travol Cage, and he just looks at it and, like, sort of, like, smiles, like, all right, like, I know it's about to go down, and just crumples the picture up. There's, like, a shootout almost to end all shootouts, right? It's all the guns. Like, everybody has guns. It's this epic, massive shootout. Everybody is, like, it's a huge Mexican standoff, and then just, like, everybody just starts shooting at everybody. You know what's really cool about the way that this particular shootout is shot that, like, I couldn't help but see is, like, the big Mexican standoff where... 
he's got Gina Gershon and they've got the wife and the daughter and he's got his go- everyone's got guns on everyone and then when the guns go off you only really see the discharge from the guns you know like yeah. all the shots are actually the gun shooting being shot but you don't really see who is shooting who that's like revealed for the aftermath and it kind of turns out that like nobody we really know or care about dies. Like it seems like nobody we know dies. Like people have been killed, but are just sort of peripheral characters. And then we realize, and I'm sorry to break it to you again, Mike Flynn, but Gina Gershon was killed in the scene. That like she's the only like real actual meaningful casualty. And it's heartbreaking. In the midst of all this chaos, I guess they get like elbowed in the throat and like the voice chips finally. I mean, talk about like the Chekhov's gun, talk about the needle in the heart in the rock, right? We sort of knew all along that the voice chip was gonna become dislodged and it becomes dislodged at the at the perfect time. We see one actor with the other actor's voice. Yeah, I actually was sort of yearning for some more of this, you know, <laughs> like a little more. Like I almost wanted him to punch uh, Travolta in the throat so he started to sound like Nick Cage again you know like (laughs) they were both gradually resorting to their former selves and then Jamie shows up of course Jamie shows up because like you know why would she not show up Travolta Cage like takes her I don't want to know what his plan is in this situation but like he just licks her face and it's so creepy and then again another Chekhov's gun she takes that butterfly knife that he gave her and jams it in his leg and twists the blade and then flees. It's exactly like the kind of move, it's like her ultimate like sort of redemption. It's like the first like real good thing she's done as a character in this movie. Yeah, it sort of completes her little arc about finding herself, right? <laughs> in a way, like under this high pressure situation, she did what she had to do. I don't think that she's going to go home and put on the goth outfit anymore. She's probably going to walk back into school with a lot of confidence after surviving something like this traumatic. Absolutely. And then, and then, and then, <laughs> we get the final action sequence to end a movie full of action sequences the action sequence that actually won the MTV Movie Award for best action (laughs) sequence. They actually won two MTV Movie Awards, believe it or not. They won best action sequence and best on-screen duo, because of course they did. In this movie, where we had... like, let's, let's, Let's try to remember them all. We have the plane trying to take off, the plane taking off, crashing to the hangar, becoming a gunfight. We have the prison fights... We have the shootout in the atrium. We have all the SWAT team there. And the prison and escape. We have, we have the prison escape. Yeah, and this is um, as packed as you can pack a film, you know? Like, that's how it feels, too. And none of it really feels, like, that obligatory. Like, every every piece fits proper. I don't want to say there's reasons for everything, but every action sequence feels justified, you know? It's almost like music, where... The action sequences are the chorus, something like that, right? Like, you get the verse, which is all, like, just the drama and the suspense, and then the action comes, and it's a nice, loud chorus. John Woo is the composer. He is symphonic in the way he makes action. The boat chase, that was how he originally intended for Hard Target to end. But Van Damme wanted it to be on horseback. (laughs) True story. We didn't say it like we hadn't said it up this point. Like they both get in speedboats and they just take off after each other in like the open water. They're shooting at each other and there's like a, a boat full of cops that show up. There's boats flying through the air, boats flying through flames. 
boats flying through other exploding boats. We have Cage Volta jumping to Travolcage's boat as his boat explodes. We have, like, harpoons. They're basically taking the book of crazy action that can happen on a boat and just throwing it at us. Everything that could happen in the water does. When this sequence started, I was kind of, like, exhausted. And I was like, ah, a boat chase? (laughs) Like, now? All right. And it was going, and I was like, all right, all right, this is okay. As it kept going, I was like, holy crap. He jumps through a flaming boat with his boat, like, jumps to the other boat. There's a fight with an anchor. He gets dragged by a chain. Like, he starts surfing, like, on the side of the boat and stuff. He shoots the harpoon to make the boat turn. They get thrown from the boat. Everything explodes. By the end of this boat fight, I was like, whoa, bro. I was like, a standing and applauding. <laughs> I was like amazed. So not only like is there this massive boat chase, but then they crash onto the beach. And then there's like sort of like in a little fist fight. Cage Volta, Sean Archer, the good guy, has a harpoon. He sort of has uh, Travolcage pinned up against the wall. And like he shoots the harpoon, but like caster catches it like he basically stops the harpoon because they're fighting with it and then finally cage volta lets it loose and it goes right into the chest in basically the same area that archer was wounded in symbolism speaking of symbolism i don't know if you noticed but the bad guy was driving a a red boat and the good guy was driving a white boat just a few minutes earlier so (laughs) oh a little little angel devil exactly or a little like Man in red sports car, man in red sports boat. Oh, <gasps> Joey. <laughs> man in red sports boat. But he's like pinned against the wall with the harpoon through him. Like he basically knows he's either going to get caught or go back to jail or die or whatever. And so he's like, what am I going to do? But just take a knife. I'm like, this is cra-. Like in a movie full of crazy things, this might be the craziest. He takes a knife and just basically starts to like scar his face. Like again, talking about like playing the Joker, you want to know how I got these scars? Like, I took a knife to my own face just so that the guy who actually owned this face couldn't have it back. Yeah, I always got the sense that he was, like, going to carve the face off and, like, throw it away, you know, so he couldn't get it back. That is just so in character, too, for Castro Troy, right? Like, at the end, you know, here at the end, like, I may die, but I'm going to win. And then I think what actually happens is, you know, as he's carving his face up, Cage Volta kicks him in the balls. <laughs> kicks him in the balls, right? And, like, ungrip the harpoon gun, and so, like, it can spring open and, you know, impale him. But then there's a gunshot, right? Uh, no, no. Uh, Nick Cage sort of just screams, die, in Travolta's face and falls to the ground. You're right, Sean. I've misbehaved. I need to be punished. <laughs> Every time you look in the mirror, you'll see my face. And then the cops come, like the cavalry comes, and they're, they're too late. The job is done when they arrive. The, now they know who's who. Somebody calls him Sean Archer, and Margaret Cho's like, yeah, he called you Archer, sir. Like, we know who you are. It's basically like sort of the happy ending, right? Like, they're bringing in the top surgical team. His nemesis is dead. 
all is going to be right. They're going to return him back to the life that he once had. I mean, it feels a pretty well-earned win. I'm I'm not disappointed that they, like, you know, he didn't have to sacrifice his life to get Archer in the end or anything like that. I mean, not that happy endings are rare in Hollywood films, but it's just nice that this gets a soft ending, I'd say, right? Like, everything, it's, it's the ideal here, right? He saves the day. Everything's going to work out fine. And he gets his wedding ring back, and he tells the surgeon, he's like, hey, I wanted that scar back, but, like, I don't need the scar. I've got closure. All is right with him. So the surgery happens, and they cut to the house, and they show Eve and Jamie, and Travolta shows up, and it's actually Travolta as Travolta. Nobody really knows how to process the situation, but it doesn't matter because he's like, hey, I have a favor to ask of you guys. And then Adam, a.k.a. Michael 2.0, shows up. And, like, <laughs> nobody says anything. They're just like, yes, like he's our son now. <laughs> like He gets inducted into the family with a little bit of a face waterfall, and then the movie ends happily ever after. It's weird what happens with the kid at the end there, but it's symbolic. You know, I think <laughs> sure. it's a film, and to John Woo, this is art, and, you know, this is closure. If you have that little kid in there, he made a promise to Gina Gershon. It, he would take care of him, and I know it seems hard to accept, but I buy it thematically. This is a film. It's not reality, you know, clearly. So I have some more trivia about this movie, but before we get into that, Mike Flynn, is there anything else, any major points or anything that you wanted to cover that we didn't get to? Because I know this, I know how much this film means to you. I just wanted to say the movie changed my life when I was nine years old. I have owned it on VHS. I have owned it on DVD. It was among the first films that I ever owned on HD DVD, which is how I watched it last night. I applaud you, sir. I was so close to getting HD players, so... I think we covered this film very well. Yes. Mike Manzi, is there anything else that you want to talk about? Well, I mean, just going back to just quickly with John Woo, you know, like, he didn't really have a very successful career in America, unfortunately. I just don't think that our sensibilities meshed very well with his culture's sensibilities, you know? Um, right. However, this movie did. Like, something about this film spoke to him in the way that he was used to speaking. In a lot of his films is the cop and the villain dynamic, you know, a hard-boiled the killer there's this like the cop and the killer they're two sides of the same coin usually in his films they're both quite honorable so in this you know the american sensibility where they don't respect each other that was kind of new if you want to understand more of what his other films are like like this is pretty much as, as close as we got i think in america yeah very much so and even though like you were saying even though he wasn't necessarily successful altogether or you know as a whole Really, all that matters is that, like, they, you, you, you create one thing that stands the test of time, and, like, this does. Like, this is one of the best action movies that's ever been made. And it's, it's sort of sad, right, that, like, we've kind of been building to this point in Cage Club, and now that this week is over, it's, it's not all downhill from here. Like, there's a lot of still great stuff to come, but, like, this is kind of, like, the biggest that Cage ever is. I mean, he's got some, like, you know, big roles that are going to happen in the future, but, like, this is sort of like a monumental, like, this is a landmark for Cage Club. Yeah, this is definitely synonymous with Cage, yeah. In terms of this movie, it won a few awards. I mentioned before the two MTV Movie Award wins. Was nominated, like we mentioned at the very top of it, for Trailer of the Decade. It lost to seven, but it was nominated and went up against Pulp Fiction, Fargo, and Dumb and Dumber, believe it or not. 
Well, you know what the face-off trailer did that trailers don't really do anymore is it's a trailer that, like, isn't it like the footage is basically just like the trailer f- for the trailer? It's almost like there was a Terminator 2 trailer where you saw a T-100 yep. being, like, assembled, right? Like, those were the days where they would just shoot trailers. For, like, the alien trailers were like that, too, where it was just sort of the egg hatching or something. Yeah, and I kind of miss those days, but I-, I wonder if that had something to do with its awesomeness. <laughs> I think I think it was pretty much half shot for the trailer and then half just a couple, you know, really big action scenes from the movie. Okay, so, some trivia. The studio wanted John Woo to take the slash out of the title, but he wanted to keep it in to ensure that people didn't think it was a hockey movie. We were talking earlier about team-ups. Uh, originally, Schwarzenegger and Stallone were in mind to play the lead roles, and like Mike said, that they would later team up in basically the same movie, kind of, in Escape Plan. But when John Woo came on, he decided that Travolta and Cage would be better suited for the roles. And I know that uh, Michael Douglas and Harrison Ford was another pairing that they considered. I don't know how either of them would have played either role. I can't see right. Harrison Ford playing Delirious. So here are some other people who were considered for the roles. John Woo considered casting Jean-Claude Van Damme, Patrick Swayze. So the other pairs of actors that were considered were Schwarzenegger and Stallone, Harrison Ford and Michael Douglas, Bruce Willis and Alec Baldwin, Van Damme and Seagal, which would be amazing. Not the movie that we know and love, but, like, amazing. Right. And Pacino and De Niro. This almost has, like, one of those, like, Freddy vs. Jason kind of crossover feels to it, to a degree. When you start thinking, like, what I did is, like, Travolta and Cage crossing over, they're almost like these iconic universal horror monsters sharing the screen together. Okay, so, Mike, what is your dream pairing for this movie? I hope I didn't raise the expectations of this too much, but I want to see Vin Diesel and Ice Cube. Oh, wow. (laughs) I don't know how you would do the skin pigment change. It would have to be set, you know, they'd have to go back to setting it 100 years in the future or something like that. I at least want Vin Diesel, like, somewhere in this movie. That's all I kept thinking. Maybe Diesel and Clooney? I would, I mean, I would see any version of this movie, I think. Uh, I'm glad that it's Cajun Travolta, but I would see any version of this movie. A couple things about the prison. There's boxes at the prison marked Injin, I-N-J-E-N, or Ingen, and that's apparently the company that cloned dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Whoa. It also means no one, like the phrase no one in Danish, Norwegian, and Swedish. But I like to imagine that this is a, a movie, like we were talking about how the rock and armageddon share universe i would love for this face-off universe to be the same one where there's just an island full of dinosaurs like we have the prison island and then we have island nubar where it's just dinosaurs. and then that brings you entirely into a whole michael Crichton universe you've got sphere and congo in the same universe as face-off face-off is kind of something that michael Crichton would have written he wrote some kooky stuff yeah, I mean, Westworld. I don't know if you guys have seen Westworld, but they definitely take faces off of human-looking things in that movie. Oh, yes, they do. Speaking of taking faces off, the first real-life face transplant was accomplished in 2012 on a man named Richard Norris, who accidentally shot himself in the face with a shotgun the same year that the movie came out, apparently. So he waited 15 years but finally got a face transplant. The magnetic boots at the prison that the prisoners wore are the same boots worn by the Goombas in Super Mario Brothers. I did read that. The special edition DVD has deleted scenes on it, and one of them is an alternate ending where Travolta looks into a mirror and Eve gasps as she and the audience 
so he cast her Troy's face as Archer's reflection. And the studio decided this was too like much of a mixed ending or like too much of a downer of an ending. And they went with that happy, sort of sappy, well-deserved and well-earned, but they went with the adopting the little boy, adopting Michael 2.0. But like that would have been like a more like Cronenberg-y, Twilight Zone-y, right? Yeah. Like, you, you spend this whole movie as this other guy, you think you're back to normal, and then, nope. I watched that ending, and it's unsettling. It becomes like Lord of the Rings, where it's just like ending on top of ending on top of ending, I think. You know, it, it felt like they didn't know quite how to end it. And then not only does she see Nicolas Cage's reflection when it's clearly her husband, but they hug and the camera ends on Travolta and he kind of gives like this look where it's like, am I Travolta or am I really, you know, Castor Troy still? Mm. So (laughs) they could have cut that if they wanted to keep the reflection bit they probably could have cut that second button on the end there but yeah what they ended up going with works just fine so now my favorite bit of trivia is that we know of this trilogy of the rock con air and face off as sort of the cage action trilogy right but did you know that it's also kind of the beige volvo trilogy no in the rock nicholas cage's character says he drives a beige volvo in con air cameron poe drops pinball dave Chappelle out of the plane it falls onto a beige Volvo, and then in this movie, after escaping the prison, Sean Archer, Cage, steals a beige Volvo. There's a beige Volvo that tracks across all three movies. It's like the Three Flavors Cornetto. <laughs> like, yeah. Just the loosest thread possible. So that was Face Off. For all things Cage Club, go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews for every movie, listen to past podcasts, follow us on Twitter, Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, rate and review us on iTunes, all sorts of fun stuff. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Mike Flynn. And we'll see you next time on Cage Club.